Good morning, everyone. If uh, any of you are, I, I see some of my old BTI compatriots in here, so <laughs> it's nice to see all of you uh, with uh, <clears throat> Jay inconveniently having a baby. I mean, it's a <clears throat> so we're thankful for, for little Jade coming along. So thanks for joining us this morning. We're, we enjoy our time here in the Psalms. So let's open uh, our Lord's Day with prayer, and then we're going to look at Psalm 8 together. Our Father, it is our joy to ease our way into getting away from the things of this world, getting away from the, the difficulties that we face, and coming to the warm fire of the heat of the Word of God, where we may be warmed and filled with joy and taught and inspired and reminded of who we are in Christ. I pray for this entire Lord's Day that it would be epic and joyous and make us truly thankful for what we have in Christ. Thank you for your eternal word, which is endless in the riches that it gives to us in knowing and understanding our God and our Savior. I pray that our time in Psalm 8 today is first and foremost pleasing to you as accurately representing the text, and then secondly, would thrill our hearts with how you show us how to worship you and how in this particular case you really reveal your own majesty. We pray that that would thrill our hearts and would make us more faithful followers of Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. So I know we're going to Psalm 8 eventually. I want to have you start in Genesis 1 though. In Genesis 1, and while you're finding that, then we will get to Psalm 8. I need to do something I don't do very often, and that is I need to start um, by defending myself. I, I need to make a statement that I believe will make more sense later. It's a statement I hope you'll believe. I hope you'll understand. Um, if I take a bit of a posture of defensiveness, I just have to defend myself up front a little bit, and later it'll become clear why. Um, here's the statement. It's not my fault. So just keep that in the back of your brain. It is not my fault. Keep that in mind. I ask for your grace and for your mercy when I explain later why it's not my fault. Put that away for now. Psalm 8 is connected extremely heavily to Genesis chapter 1 because Psalm 8 is essentially a commentary on parts of Genesis 1, particularly uh, in the area of mankind as made in the image of God and what that means. And so um, we're going to make that connection. And I'm just going to read a couple of key portions from Genesis 1 that'll help lay a foundation for us and it'll feel a little more familiar than when we're in Psalm 8. But Genesis 1, beginning in verse 14, speaking of this uh, fourth day, of creation, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. So God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. So we have the creation of all the the the, the heavenly bodies, so to speak. And, and I love how he ends, 
also, and also the stars. In fact, you see in your Bible, also is supplied for us in the English translation, um, by, uh, indicated by the italics there. But it's just, it's just two little words in Hebrew. And the stars comes out three for us. That little notation is very important because what it does is it, it makes a contrast between the greatness of God and literally the smallness of the entire universe and the stars. Think about what that little phrase means. The 6,000 stars you can see on the clearest night with the naked eye, the 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, and every time... Uh, every year goes by, this estimate goes up. The latest estimate is that in, uh, in the observable universe, the observable universe, in other words, what we can see with a telescope or, or figure out mathematically, there are 200 billion trillion stars. The technical name, I looked it up, is bajillion. <laughs> it says God is bigger than, and the stars. So the majesty of God becomes clear and David's going to talk about that. But this also portrays something that's very important for us. This portrays that the center of redemptive history is the earth. This is the center. The earth is lit and heated by our sun, lit by our moon. Um, I, get, I get this question with alarming frequency, do you believe in aliens? No. Why? Because the earth is the spiritual theological center of creation and all life was created on earth and for earth. This is specified in, in every day here. You see, let the birds fly above the earth. The, the earth, the earth, the earth is continual. And I know some of you probably read the news. Well, now there's evidence that there may be, the latest thing is that there may be planets with like a Jurassic Park on it with dinosaurs and things and that doesn't scare me. It's never going to happen because the earth is the center of God's redemptive plan. So, the theological center of creation is the creation of mankind. The earth is the center of, of, of God's redemptive plan and now mankind is the center of that center. Very familiar to us, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. You cannot understand the Bible without those three verses. It's impossible. That, that is the crux of what the rest of the Bible is about. We see this dominion lived out and demonstrated before the fall. Chapter 2, verse 19. And out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. And for Adam, there was not, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So you notice this in verse 19. This is so key that God brought each animal to the man to see what he would call it. This is delegated leadership. This is dominion. God didn't tell Adam what to call the animals. He 
charged Adam with naming the animals. Um, the idea here is that potentially he gave the animals names that seemed to fit their nature or their, their characteristics. God transferred authority from himself, delegated authority to Adam, to this leadership function, and the animals were to be subservient to man as the only one made in the image of God. So I think Psalm 8 will feel more familiar to you now as we have done that background. So now we can turn to Psalm 8. And I, I just want to organize Psalm 8 around what we would see as two contrasts in two different categories. And just a simple reading of the text will make this very clear. We'll organize this around two contrasts, two different categories. But first I'm going to read Psalm 8 to us. This is for the choir director, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, What is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You hear the overtones of what we read in Genesis 1 already, don't you? So two contrasts in two categories. We're going to do a contrast in people. That's the first category. And a contrast in revelation. That's the second category. God revealing himself. We'll get to those in just a moment. Before we get to those, obviously, the highlight of this psalm is how it begins and ends. It begins on this high note, ends on a high note, with this famous exclamation, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'm particularly appreciative of our Legacy Standard Bible here in Psalm 8 because I I know we love to sing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But I imagine most Christians believe that's a repetition. It's not a repetition. It is two different words. It is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, Speaking to his eternal existence, this is a a reference to and related to the Hebrew word to be. And it's explained by God as I am who I am. This is his name. It is a formal name. It is a kingly name. It's a covenant name. And he is our Lord. This is a title for God, which describes him as a master, as a ruler, as a sovereign, as in charge of all of his creation. And particularly in this psalm, it describes his rule over the earth and over all the creation. In Hebrew, this is Yahweh, who is the master of us. And that's a little more precise. So I I appreciate our translation. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. His name. This speaks of his reputation, his renown, his fame, his preeminence, his holiness, his distinction, his power, His knowledge, his worth, his attributes, everything that God is is encompassed in his name. It represents him. 
And his name is Majestic. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It means mighty. It means victorious. It means magnificent, glorious. And, and where is his name Majestic? In all the earth. This is, there's no lack of, of uh, clarity here. When this says all the earth, it means every square inch of the earth. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. So that you have this initial praise. We're going to talk about the end in verse 9 in a little while. But now we can see the two contrasts in these categories of people and revelation. The first contrast of people, the weakest people versus the strongest people. Or we could just shorten it to the weakest versus the strongest. Who are the weakest people on earth? The infants and nursing babies in verse 2. And yet, the author, King David here, he says that from their mouths, you have established strength. What does that mean? Established strength is two Hebrew words that means, and I'll, I'll give an extended explanation. It means to lay a foundation for something that's fortified, to create something that's going to be protected, to create something that will give victory, to lay the groundwork for conquest. And so there's, there's this irony here that in some way, David pictures little children toddlers, even nursing babies as declaring conquest, declaring victory, as living out victory, as proving that God is victorious. And they're victorious over the strongest on the earth. As we know it today, the enemies of God are the strongest people on earth today. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That somehow the mouths of the little ones will be part of vanquishing God's enemies. That's, a, that's an incredible paradox. We see an initial setting up of this contrast shortly before the crucifixion of Christ, the weakest versus the strongest. And you probably are already thinking about this. The, the week of his arrest and crucifixion after Jesus entered Jerusalem, for the second time in his ministry, he cleansed the temple of all the buyers and sellers who were desecrating the house of God. And Matthew 21, beginning in verse 14, records what happens next. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? The strong... The chief priests and the scribes contrasted with the weak. And Jesus cites Psalm 8. He cites the Greek translation to describe the children who were shouting praise to Jesus in the temple. That they will win and the scribes and Pharisees will lose. By the way, that's a theme all throughout Scripture. It's one that I find tremendously comforting that God saves and uses the very weakest and the most insignificant of humanity. He uses the powerless while he shames the strong and the powerful. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are. So that no flesh may boast before God. And so to the children, the weak, Jesus declared, Matthew nineteen fourteen, 
Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And to the self-righteous, the enemies of God, the strong on this earth, Jesus declared in John 8, 21, I am going away. You will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. What a contrast. The weak versus the strong. There's a second category of contrast, category of revelation, and this is general revelation versus specific revelation. General revelation versus specific revelation. Now this contrast, unlike the weakest versus the strongest, this isn't one element pitted against the other. It's just two ways that God has revealed himself, but we see this contrast here in the psalm. The first is general revelation. General revelation simply is a theological way of describing the fact that the Bible declares that creation declares God's existence. That if you didn't have specific revelation, if you didn't have a Bible, we would still know that God exists because creation declares this. That God is here, that God is glorious. The second half of verse 1, who displays your splendor or your glory above the heavens. Now this is an interesting little phrase here. This is actually an imperative that God commands his glory in the heavens, that he commands the display of his splendor. Now, why would David say above the heavens? The Hebrew pictured three levels of Shemayim. They would call it the heavens or the skies. The first heaven is the sky where the birds fly and where the clouds are. The second heaven is pictured as where all the stars and the sun and the moon exist. And the third heaven is pictured as the place where God resides. As John MacArthur has famously uh, said, that when people ask him where heaven is, he simply says, it's up. That's where heaven is. The third heaven is where we think of heaven. This is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 3, I know a man in Christ Whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And so David here says that he displays his splendor above the heavens, the first heaven, the second heaven, the third heaven, that that God's glory is transcendent above everything. That's that's comprehensive. Verse 3 continues this declaration of the general revelation of God. Verse 3, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established. I, I love that he uses the specific word, the work of your fingers. You remember being a little kid with, a, with finger paints or maybe secretly you still do those, I don't know. And, and you, you got the little dot of paint and you could just kind of go boop like that. And, you, and, and then you could say, look, it's a planet. Well, God really did that. Bloop, look, it's Jupiter. Or bloop, look, it's the Milky Way. The work of your fingers. David is, and I read this to you on purpose, he's hearkening back to the fourth day of creation. The creation of the sun, moon, and the little asterisk, and the stars. And of course, your mind may be going forward a few pages in Psalms. Probably the most glorious declaration of the general revelation of God in Psalm 19 The heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. 
In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This glorious declaration that God has made himself known with the creation. But in contrast to that, now David makes a switch. He switches over to specific revelation. Specific revelation, the revealing of God with words. The words of God, the very mind of God in ways that can actually be written. Special revelation comes to us in the word of God. Special revelation came to us in the son of God. He's the ultimate special revelation. And he's equated with the mind and with the word of God. In John 1, he's called the logos, the word of God made flesh. Because now David takes us beyond general revelation and he goes to something that's revealed or imparted. It's taught. It's explained by God. It's information which can't be gleaned from general revelation. And that is the nature of mankind. And he asks this question in verse 4. What is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? So there's a transition here. David compares what he sees in general revelation. We see thousands of stars, even just with the, with the naked eye, the entire mass of creation declaring the commanded glory of God, and he compares that to the seeming insignificance of mankind. I mean, the, the biggest of us, I didn't even make it to this, but the biggest of us are maybe a little over six feet tall. That's it. You realize there are sweet potatoes that are bigger than that on this earth? There are vegetables bigger than you. And of course, we think of the whole planet. We think of multiple planets in solar systems, which in galaxies and millions and billions of those galaxies. This is a great question. What is man? You would think that maybe we'd be made a little more spectacular, but we were. The answer is that man is the crowning achievement of God's creation. We are the top. We are the central focus. In verse 5, this wonderful contrastive conjunction, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty. Here we are back to this clear reference to the image of God. And remember, what is the main function of the image of God? From Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the main function of us being made in the image of God is to have dominion, to subdue the earth. That's what we do as God's image. He's crowned with glory and honor. And this, this has the idea of a position that's bestowed on you. Now, just a little side note here. Verse 5 is applied to Christ himself. You're probably thinking of Hebrews 2 in the midst of the writer's argument in Hebrews 2 that for a time, Christ took a position lower than the angels, but God would exalt Christ later. A little technical note here, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. Verse 5 traditionally translates this as the angels or the heavenly beings in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Our translation here says, then the angels. And so it's perfectly acceptable to go in that direction. That's how it's quoted in Hebrews 2. But the Hebrew word we're referencing here is a generic word that happens 2,700 times in the Old Testament. It's the second most common Hebrew word. And it's most often translated God. It's just the word Elohim. 
It's a, it's a plural form. Sometimes it's called a plural of majesty, which means the plural is used to, to illustrate the majestic nature of God. It can be translated heavenly beings. It can be translated angels. The context tells us what it's to be translated. I would humbly submit that in Psalm 8, it would be better to translate it God. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you know this in your, in your Bible, the direct article, the, is in italics. It's not there in Hebrew. Because the whole point of Psalm 8 is not mankind being just underneath the angels. It's about mankind being just underneath God. That we are made in his image. We are his image bearers. In fact, Psalm 114 tells us about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? The angels have been commissioned to serve us. And so it doesn't make as much sense to say that we've been created a little lower than the angels unless we want to go down the route of the fact that angels can go all over the place in invisible form and we can't do that yet. So that may be an argument. But I do think it's interesting that one of the foremost scholars in the area of the theology of image of God, Dr. Eugene Merrill, he wrote about verse 5 that he viewed God as a better translation Quote, in view of the well-established fact that this psalm is a commentary of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, as God's image and viceroy, man himself is a king crowned with glory and honor. And in fact, this is even stronger an argument from verses 6 and 7 because we see kingship in verses 6 and 7. We've been appointed as rulers over all creation with everything under his feet. In verse 6, what does that remind us of? It reminds us of Genesis 1, 28, to have dominion and to subdue, which are Hebrew words that both mean to have things under your feet, things that you walk upon, that you're over. And so what do we have dominion over? The objects of our dominion, verses 7 and 8, are exactly the same as those listed in Genesis, just in opposite order. In Genesis, we have the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every living beast. In Psalm 8, we have the beast, the birds, and the fish. And it just goes in a different order. So, we have two contrasts that really point us to the majesty of God. We have the weakest versus the strongest. That the weakest will win out over the strongest because the weakest are worshipers. They're worshipers of the true and living God. And we have general revelation versus special revelation. General revelation does reveal the glory of God, but special revelation reveals the plan of God and reveals who we are and what we're about. Now, I said that we would pay special attention to verse 9, which is identical to the beginning of verse 1. Verse 9, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, musically speaking and poetically, this is a glorious device. Um, It's a device that preachers use all the time that you start and end in the same place. It's a device that, that speakers, public speakers, have been using for centuries and centuries. But in this particular case, it's very much the intended bookends of this psalm. And before I get into verse 9, let me just remind you, what, it, what is the major push here? The major push is that you have mankind made in the image of God, two categories, the weak ones who will be saved, the strong ones who won't, 
And then you have general revelation, which reveals the majesty of God, the glory of God. You have special revelation, which reveals God's plan for mankind, God's plan for uh, his majestic ones, the ones that are crowned with glory and honor, and what it means that we're going to work out the image of God as those having dominion. So keep all that in your mind as we keep these bookends in mind. This little word, how majestic is your name in all the earth, This is a word that's called, and you don't need to write this down. I'll tell you why I'm telling you, though. It's called an interrogative pronoun. And I tell you the interrogative part because it sounds like interrogation. What is an interrogation? Interrogation is simply when you ask questions. And in fact, in Hebrew, an interrogative pronoun indicates that a question is being asked. That's not generally how we read it in English. We read it as a declaration. How majestic is your name in all the earth? But there's a question in here. And the question is, how is your name majestic in all the earth? How is that worked out? How is God glorified in all the earth, every square inch of the earth? How is God's splendor made known in all the earth? And it asks the question twice. And this is a reasonable question. Because generally speaking, God is glorified in all the earth because God displays his wonder and his majesty in the heavens and on the earth. But the strongest, the adversaries and enemies of God, they still dominate the earth, don't they? Mankind certainly doesn't enjoy the peaceful dominion over the sheep and the oxen and the birds and the fish of the sea. We're still in a broken and distant relationship with creation, with the animal kingdom. I mean, it's sort of who's going to eat who first in this world right now, isn't it? We're in a broken relationship. Genesis 9, verse 2, God declared to Noah, the fear of you and the terror of you, meaning mankind, will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. I always laugh when I see political and spiritual liberals Uh, just getting torn up over the fact that they had to step on a cockroach. No, you step on the cockroach or it's going to invade your life. It's going to destroy your life. We're in an adversarial relationship with creation. Nobody wants it that way, but that's the way it is. We can't say truthfully, we can't say with integrity that God is being glorified as majestic by people on every square inch of the earth. We can't say that. Nobody believes that. That's not true. So then that brings us back to the question, how is your name majestic in all the earth? How is your name glorified in all the earth? What's the mechanism? Well, the answer is that the name of God is glorified in all the earth when his assigned rulers, the redeemed of all the ages, are reigning as the appointed and delegated representatives of God, who is our master, our Adonai, our Lord over all the earth. That God is glorified over all the earth, listen carefully, only when Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is actually being fulfilled. And when will this be fulfilled? I told you earlier, it's not my fault. It is not my fault. I've been preaching for six months now on Sunday evenings about the coming millennial kingdom. I'm trying to give variety. I'm trying to give assortment of topics on any given Sunday, it is not my fault that Psalm 8 leads us to the millennium. The text takes us there because Psalm 8 is only fulfilled 
when Christ is reigning on the earth. So if I have to bring up the millennium, it's not my fault. That's where the text leads us. But let me show you. When will the Lord's name be majestic in all the earth? During the millennium. Micah 4 verse 1. Now it will be in in the last days. The mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains. And will be lifted up above the hills. And the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. The name of the Lord will be majestic in all the earth when Christ is reigning on the earth and all the nations are coming to hear King Jesus teach truth. When will we have a time when the enemies of God are crushed? The millennium. Zechariah 14.3 Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights on the day of battle. When will we have toddlers, infants, babies on the earth who are demonstrating the strength of Christ's kingdom, demonstrating the victory of Christ's kingdom, establishing the strength of the kingdom in the millennium? Isaiah 65.20 No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Infant mortality will be zero because, remember, non-glorified saints will still be living on the earth, the descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation. They'll still be having babies and every one of them will live. Every one of them will thrive. And in fact, directly connecting children to the renewal of our relationship to the animal kingdom, when will animals be so subservient and when will mankind be so dominant that even babies will have dominance over the animal kingdom? Only during the millennium. Isaiah eleven six through 8. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the young boy, it's a word that means a toddler, will lead them. A lion and a wolf and a leopard? You get your two-year-old, go take the animals out. They, they want to eat. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing baby will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. Can you imagine a little bitty baby with snakes crawling all over him and he's giggling and laughing? And those snakes will do whatever he says because he's in charge. It's not my fault. But how is the name of Lord Yahweh majestic in all the earth? Because the king of all the kings will be ruling all his resurrected saints reigning on the earth characterized by little children showing the strength of the kingdom enemies crushed beneath the king's judgment creation in total subjection to mankind and of course still the heavens declaring the glory of God. Not my fault. Psalm 8 takes us forward to the millennium. It is the only answer to all of those things happening at the same time. And one little side note, since I have two extra minutes that I put in my own schedule. When was Psalm 8 written? The best theory is that Psalm 8 was written by King David right around the time that he was given a covenant by God that his family would rule on the earth forever and ever. Obviously, we know this through Messiah. So David is looking ahead 
to a time when God's covenant with him is fulfilled in its entirety and what that means gloriously for the whole world. So when you say, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, unless you have time to explain this to someone, maybe not do it out loud, but in your own heart you can say, how is your name majestic in all the earth? And the answer is, when Christ comes, and sets up his kingdom, and we're all reigning with him. Now his name is majestic in all the earth. That's the answer to the question. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for a time of warmth in your word and delight to just begin getting our minds and our our hearts really focused upon you. We have a whole day ahead of us, Lord, of hearing your word, of singing glorious truths, of fellowshipping with the, the best people on earth, the redeemed, What a glorious thing the Lord's day is. And I pray that the hearts of all hearing this right now have been warmed and attuned to the things of God, to things beyond the difficulties and pains of this life. I pray that this day is honoring to you that we would be worthy and humble worshipers all because of Christ and what he has done on the cross. And Lord, we do look forward to that day when rather than the question, how is your name glorified in all the earth? that we can simply declare how majestic is your name in all the earth. What a day that will be. We look forward to it because of Christ and it's in his name we pray. Amen.